Chapter Twenty Seven of Uncle Silas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Silas by J. Sheridan Le Fanu. Chapter Twenty Seven. More about Tom Chark's suicide. So the inquest was held and Mr. Manswaring of Whale Forest was the only juryman who seemed to entertain the idea during the inquiry that Mr. Chark had died by any hand but his own. "'And how could he fancy such a thing?' I exclaimed indignantly. "'Well, you will see the result was quite enough to justify them in saying, as they did, that he died by his own hand. The window was found fastened with a screw on the inside, as it had been when the chambermaid had arranged it at nine o'clock. No one could have entered through it. Besides, it was on the third story, and the rooms are lofty, so it stood a great height from the ground, and there was no ladder long enough to reach it. The house is built in the form of a hollow square, and Mr. Chark's room looked into the narrow courtyard within. There is but one door leading into this, and it did not show any sign of having been opened for years. The door was locked upon the inside, and the key in the lock, so that nobody could have made an entrance that way either, for it was impossible, you see, to unlock the door from the outside. "'And how could they affect to question anything so clear?' I asked. There did come, nevertheless, a kind of mist over the subject, which gave those who chose to talk unpleasantly an opportunity of insinuating suspicions though they could not themselves find the clue of the mystery. In the first place, it appeared that he had gone to bed very tipsy, and that he was heard singing and noisy in his room while getting to bed, not the mood in which men make away with themselves. Then, although his own razor was found in that dreadful blood, it is shocking to have to hear all this. Near his right hand, the fingers of his left were cut to the bone, then the memorandum-book in which his bets were noted was nowhere to be found. That, you know, was very odd. His keys were attached to a chain. He wore a great deal of gold and trinkets. I saw him, wretched man, on the course. They had got off their horses. He and your uncle were walking on the course. Did he look like a gentleman? I inquired, as I dare say other young ladies would. He looked like a Jew, my dear. He had a horrid brown coat with a velvet cape, curling black hair over his collar, and great whiskers, very high shoulders, and he was puffing a cigar straight up into the air. I was shocked to see Silas in such company. "'And did his keys discover anything?' I asked. On opening his travelling desk in a small japanned box within it, a vast deal less money was found than was expected. In fact, very little.' Your uncle said that he had won some of it in the night before at play, and that Chark complained to him when tipsy of having had severe losses to counterbalance his gains on the races. Besides, he had been paid but a small part of those gains. About his book it appeared that there were little notes of bets on the back of letters, and it was said that he sometimes made no other memorandum of his wagers. But this was disputed, and among those notes there was not one referring to Silas. But then there was an omission of all allusion to his transactions with two other well-known gentlemen, so that was not singular. 
"'No, certainly, that was quite accounted for,' said I. "'And then came the question,' continued she, "'what motive could Mr. Chark possibly have had for making away with himself?' "'But is not that very difficult to make out in many cases?' I interposed. "'It was said that he had some mysterious troubles in London at which he used to hint. "'Some people said that he really was in a scrape.' but others that there was no such thing, and that when he talked so he was only jesting. There was no suspicion during the inquest that your uncle Silas was involved, except those questions of Mr. Manwaring's. What were they? I asked. I really forget, but they greatly offended your uncle. And there was a little scene in the room. Mr. Manwaring seemed to think that someone had somehow gotten into the room. Through the door it could not be, nor down the chimney, for they found an iron bar across the flute near the top of the masonry. The window looked into the courtyard no bigger than a ballroom. They went down and examined it, but, though the ground beneath was moist, they could not discover the slightest trace of a footprint. So as far as they could make out, Mr. Chark had hermetically sealed himself into his room, and then cut his throat with his own razor. "'Yes,' said I, "'for it was all secured, that is, the window and the door, upon the inside, and no sign of any attempt to get in.' "'Just so. And when the walls were searched, and, as your uncle Silas directed, the wainscoting removed, some months afterwards, when the scandal grew loudest, then it was evident that there was no concealed access to the room. "'So the answer to all those calumnies was simply that the crime was impossible,' said I. "'How dreadful that such a slander should have required an answer at all!' It was an unpleasant affair, even then, although I cannot say that anyone supposed Silas guilty. But you know the whole thing was disreputable, that Mr. Chark was a discreditable inmate. The occurrence was horrible, and there was a glare of publicity which brought into relief the scandals of Bartram Hoff. But in a little time it became, all on a sudden, a great deal worse. My cousin paused to recollect exactly. There were very disagreeable whispers among these sporting people in London. This person, Chark, had written two letters. Yes, two. They were published about two months after by the villain to whom they were written. He wanted to extort money. They were first talked of a great deal among that set in town, but the moment they were published they produced a sensation in the country, and a storm of newspaper commentary. The first of these was of no great consequence, but the second was very startling, embarrassing, and even alarming. "'What was it, Cousin Monica?' I whispered. "'I can only tell you in a general way. It is so very long since I read it. But both were written in the same kind of slang, and parts as hard to understand as a prize fight. I hope you never read those things.' I satisfied this sudden educational alarm, and Lady Knollys proceeded. "'I am afraid you hardly hear me.' The wind makes such an uproar. Well, listen, the letter said distinctly that he, Mr. Chark, had made a very profitable visit to Bartram Hoff, and mentioned in exact figures for how much he held your Uncle Silas's IOUs, for he could not pay him. I can't say what the sum was, I only remember that it was quite frightful. It took away my breath when I read it. Uncle Silas had lost it, I asked. Yes, and owed it and had given him those papers called IOUs promising to pay, which of course Mr. Chark had locked up with his money. The insinuation was that Silas had made away with him to get rid of this debt, 
and that he had also taken a great deal of his money. "'I just recollect these points which were exactly what made the impression,' continued Lady Knollys, after a short pause. "'The letter was written in the evening of the last day of the wretched man's life, so that there had not been much time for your Uncle Silas to win back his money, and he stoutly alleged that he did not owe Mr. Chark a guinea. It mentioned an enormous sum as being actually owed by Silas, and it cautioned the man, an agent, to whom he wrote, not to mention the circumstance, as Silas could only pay by getting the money from his wealthy brother, who would have the management. And he very distinctly said that he had kept the matter very close at Silas's request. That, you know, was a very awkward letter, and all the worse that it was written in brutally high spirits, and not at all like a man meditating an exit from the world. You can imagine what a sensation the publication of these letters produced. In a moment the storm was up, and certainly Silas did meet it bravely. Yes, with great courage and ability. What a pity he did not early enter upon some career of ambition. Well, well, it is idle regretting. He suggested that the letters were forgeries. He alleged that Chark was in the habit of boasting and telling enormous falsehoods about his gambling transactions, especially in his letters. He reminded the world how often men affected high animal spirits at the very moment of meditating suicide. He alluded, in a manly and graceful way, to his family and their character. He took a high and menacing tone with his adversaries, and he insisted that what they dared to insinuate against him was physically impossible. I asked in what form this vindication appeared. It was a letter, printed as a pamphlet. Everybody admired its ability, ingenuity, and force, and it was written with immense rapidity. "'Was it at all in the style of his letters?' I innocently asked. My cousin laughed. "'Oh, dear, no! Ever since he avowed himself a religious character, he had written nothing but the most vapid and nerveless twaddle. Your poor dear father used to send his letters to me to read, and I sometimes really thought that Silas was losing his faculties.' but I believe he was only trying to write in character. I suppose the general feeling was in his favor, I said. I don't think it was anywhere, but in his own county it was certainly unanimously against him. There is no use in asking why, but so it was, and I think that it would have been easier for him with his unaided strength to uproot the peak than to change the convictions of the Derbyshire gentlemen. They were all against him. Of course they were predisposing causes. Your uncle published a very bitter attack upon them, describing himself as a victim of a political conspiracy. And I recollect he mentioned that from the hour of the shocking catastrophe in his house he had forsworn the turf and all pursuits and amusements connected with it. People sneered, and said he might as well go as wait to be kicked out. Were there lawsuits about all this? I asked. Everybody expected there would for there were very savage things printed on both sides, and I think, too, that the persons who thought worst of him expected that evidence would yet turn up to convict Silas of the crime they chose to impute. And so years have glided away, and many of the people who remembered the tragedy of Bartram Hoff and took the strongest part in the denunciation and ostracism that followed are dead, and no new light has been thrown upon the occurrence, and your uncle Silas remains an outcast. At first he was quite wild with rage, and would have fought the whole county man by man if they would have met him. But he had since changed his habits, and, as he says, 
his aspirations altogether. He has become religious, the only occupation remaining to him. He owes money, he is poor, he is isolated, and, he says, sick and religious. Your poor father, who was very decided and inflexible, never helped him beyond the limit he had prescribed, after Silas's mesalliance. He wanted to get him into Parliament, and would have paid his expenses and made him an allowance, but either Silas had grown lazy, or he understood his position better than poor Austin, or he distrusted his powers, or possibly he really is in ill health. But he objected his religious scruples. Your poor papa thought self-assertion possible, where an injured man has right to rely upon. But he had been very long out of the world, and the theory won't do. Nothing is harder than to get a person who has once been effectually slurred, received again. Silas, I think, was right. I don't think it was practicable. "'Dear child, how late it is!' exclaimed Lady Knollys suddenly, looking at the Louis Couture clock that crowned the mantelpiece. It was near one o'clock. The storm had a little subsided, and I took a less agitated and more confident view of Uncle Silas than I had at an earlier hour of that evening. "'And what do you think of him?' I asked. Lady Knollys drummed on the table with her finger-points as she looked into the fire. "'I don't understand metaphysics, my dear, nor witchcraft. I sometimes believe in the supernatural, and sometimes I don't. Silas Rithin is himself alone, and I can't define him, because I don't understand him. Perhaps other souls than humans are sometimes born into this world, and clothed in flesh. It is not only about that dreadful occurrence, but nearly always throughout his life. Early and late he has puzzled me. I have tried in vain to understand him, but at one time of his life I am sure he was awfully wicked, eccentric indeed in his wickedness, gay, frivolous, secret, and dangerous. At one time I think he could have made poor Austin do almost anything. But his influence vanished with his marriage, never to return again. No, I don't understand him. He always bewildered me, like a shifting face, sometimes smiling, but always sinister, in an unpleasant dream. End of chapter 27